Okay, cool. Good morning. I'm going to tell you, I'm Eintracht Wittgenstein. This is my son, Rabbi Moshe Wittgenstein. There is no one to introduce us, so I'll let you out. I'll introduce us. I'm very honored that I was asked to speak at the mythological Yemei Yud Vitanach. And I said to my host, Rabbi Shalom Berger, Rabbi Dr. Shalom Berger, what did you get me into? He said at the end he'll tell me if he was right or I was right. And I'm very happy to be here to talk to you today in Mama Russian. And again, all of us who came on Aliyah are much smarter in English than we are in English. We know more than English we express ourselves better. The topic that we came to talk about today is indeed a very important subject that much has been thought about and written about. And I would like to start first with we call this talk I think that everybody here knows that the Ramban was the one that said it's really whatever happened to the Avot what happened to Yaakov and Esau what happened to Yitzhak and Esau will happen to us later on in history with their descendants so he really sees as being rather on the historical stage of the Jewish people and the narrative portions of the Tanakh are really to teach us a lesson about certain themes that are endemic to Jewish history and will continue in Jewish history. The assumption that I and we are working on today is is a wider concept than a historical concept. It's also a personal one. I think the Ramban himself might have had ambivalence about that. And if he was, I'll advise such a thing could happen sitting here today instead of us, he probably would admit that there is something in the psychological, because if you'll study the Ramban, you will see his, his psychological insights into, into family situations are really amazingly uh, acute. Uh, I think Rashi, even in the first Rashi, Gracious when Rabbi Yitzchok said, you know, everybody knows that I don't have to quote it, why do we have the narrative portion? He says so that the Goyim would know that Eretz Yisrael is ours. But that begs the point. Because for them to know Eretz Yisrael is ours, what do we have to know the story of the prophets? And what do we have to know what, what Yaakov did and what Esau did and how Lot and how he found his wife? So I think he truly begs the point. And I think that we need to look also at the narrative portion as having a lesson to teach us. And Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Lord of my father, in, in Abraham's journey, said something very stunning. He says that Brit Sinai told the Jew what to do. Brit Avod taught him how to live. And therefore, the stories that we see tell us how to live. And I will just quote very briefly from it. And he said, the patriarchic covenant, that is in plain English, Brit Avot, teaches the Jew how to feel as a member of that community and how to experience being a Jew. It is a great experience, but not everyone knows how to experience his Jewishness. And he continues, 
And this is truly, I think, what we're going to talk about today. What is the continental personality fashioned by the patriarchs and matriarchs? I'll translate into Avot v'imahot by Sarah and Abraham, by Yitzhak and Rivka, by Yaakov, Rachel and Leah. What kind of personality was it? The basic characteristic of the covenantal man and the woman is the existential dialectic with which they are burdened and awareness of greatness as well as helplessness. And I think this is a theme that goes throughout. They are helpless at certain points and they are great. And what, when we're going to talk today, I think we're not talking about Tanakh, Gova, and Nayim. We're not the Gova and Nayim of the Avon. They are great and we are small. But we are going to discuss the the Brit Avot and what happened with them. Now, uh, I think when we look, when we look at uh, the Avot as being some way that we can learn how we ourselves can raise our children, what are the human, how do we live as Jews, as the Rav says, I think we have to realize that there is being a religious person, there is a component in parenthood that the non-religious person does not have. And that component in parenthood appears in gracious. appears in gracious, and when the Rabbeinu Shalom says to, to, to about Abraham, he dativ l'man ashi yitzavet banavet beito acharev v'shamru derech Hashem l'asot stakah. A religious parent has to bring up a religious child. It is his responsibility to see that that child goes the Derech Hashem But I would like to focus on the word Yitzaveh He will command them, that is authority. And it would seem to me that for a person living in the current age of her parents, not my generation, but the generation beneath me and the generation beneath them, the word authority has taken upon a different meaning and there's a negative response to authority. Authority is not the main aspect of parenting today. The main aspect of parenting today is empathy, acceptance, um, uh, containment. And I think this leads to some kind of a problem for the, for the modern Jew, the modern religious Jew, in raising his child. And what I will attempt to do today and I will attempt to show Abraham and, and Yitzchak the differences between them, and Rivka, the differences between them, the use of authority, and how they were able, in their way, to, to, to live up to so good morning. Uh, I'm glad my mother's relaxed because I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. I've been trying for 50-something years. Um, my mother began by mentioning Rashi and the first Rashi in the Torah and the basic tension, how much the divine text really deals with human uh, issues. So the first Rashi is indeed very familiar, so I will now quote a text in the Zohar, which... I will quote because I assume the Zohar is a bit less familiar. Um, it says like, 
דאמר דאורייתא אטי לאחזאי סיפור באלמא ולדיוטי. אוי גוואלד to the person who thinks that the Torah comes to tell us stories and human affairs. סיפור באלמא ומילדיוטי. Why? Because that all of us can do. Anybody can write a novel, and I'm skipping here a long uh, quote, but essentially the source is as follows, that the Torah used the metaphor of clothing and, and the body. The garment is the, out, is the external manifestation, but the inner uh, part is, is the body itself. And, and the metaphor of the Zohar, so um, the stories are simply the garments. Um, this is the essence, the body, which is the inon pikudei oraita. These are the halachot. The halachot in the Zohar's presentation are the actual, the actuality of Torah. And the Torah needs to somehow dress it up uh, with all kinds of external uh, coverings. Which are once more like clothing here, and therefore, obviously, it is recommended that we deal more with the halacha, surprisingly, and not with the stories. However, we can read, I can read many passages here from the Rav and others uh, that the essence of Sefer Breshit is all about uh, relationships. And I think the best proof of that is that um, the Torah says, <laughs> When the Torah wants to. Wants to use a metaphor to describe the man God relationship, it uses human relationships. And throughout Tanakh, there is uh, emphasis upon this. It's very problematic. The anthropomorphism is not usually a good idea. The Rambam and Unkulus spent a huge amount of time and energy to explain to us that the Torah, what you see, is not what it really is. And the Torah doesn't really mean that we should understand it as such. But nevertheless, the Torah decided to use this vehicle. Rida Levi, the Kuzari, he, he asks, why not use the metaphor of light, which is common in other uh, philosophies? You use the metaphor of light, it's much more accurate, it's more abstract, it's less corporal. Uh, why, uh, why does the Torah use uh, the parent-child metaphor, husband-wife metaphor, and so on? And in a word, the lady says that. Um, it's so annoying. Can you just not interrupt? So rude. Can you fix it later? Because what really matters in religious life are relationships. And, and therefore, even though relationships may confuse them metaphysically, religiously they're crucial. And therefore, uh, the point of the session is uh, extremely important. Um, I'll mention one more other attention briefly. The Avot live a dual life. There's a split screen in their, in their lives. Uh, the screen, the screen number one is their private lives. They have families, they have, uh, they have husbands, their husbands, wives, children, their fertility problems, there are all kinds of other issues. Um, on another level, though, they're establishing a nation. You know, these, are, these are figures who uh, 
in a sense, are not only private figures, they are national figures. And how do you view their interplay? Do you come and say, as some have claimed, that their personal lives don't matter? They've devoted their lives to the Kadosh Baruch Hu and to Am Yisrael, and therefore the relationships don't really matter. Or, I think, you know, at least, I think both of us certainly uh, hold that position, that... Um, because they create a nation through the vehicle of a family and through relationships. Sefer Breshit illustrates how you develop a family through these relationships. My mother mentioned she will talk about Avram and Yitzchak, so later on as we move further in, I will try to represent Yaakov down the road. That having been said, I would like to talk about parent-child relationships, or family relationships, in, in Safer Bracious. I would like to start by portraying Avraham Avinu as I see him. Avraham Avinu, to my, to, as, as I read the Potsdam, and every year you read it again, and every year you see different things, but as I read it now from my vantage point, Avraham Avinu is goal-oriented, his job is, his job, his task was to, um, to spread the word of monotheism, to to go into Eretz Israel. He's a wandering Jew. He does not know where he's going to be tomorrow. He's leaving and he doesn't know where he's going. He's getting on a train, if you will, or he's going on Shvil Yisrael, and no one tells him, the God does not tell him what the route is. But he's goal-oriented. He does what he must do. His task is to set up a family, and this takes him 100 years to set up a family and to have a child that will continue, and to be the founding father of a, of a family that will then become a people. In the process of this, Abraham Avinu does not express emotion. There are many, many verbs in the story of Abraham Avinu that are verbs. He's doing. He's a doer. I think he was a being, a being. You know, there's doing and there's being. I think he was being too, but the being was personal. The being was not shared with us. I'm sure the being was very deep, was very... Um, uh, it's very deep and very um, uh, emotion laden. He develops an intimate relationship with the Rabbeinu Shalom, but he does not share it with others. Look at all the words Vayokam Babok, Vayashkin Babok, Vayele. My favorite posik is El Habakar Ratz. He runs to do what he has to do. The, the verb El, El Habakar Rats, he's running to do this, El Habakar, one of the Bakar is to make a meal, or the Bakar is to go to the Akeda, or one of the Bakar is to, 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 to go to Be'er Sheva, to bury, to bury Sarah, El Habakar Rats. And if you will look, and I went last yesterday, and I looked at all of the dramatic moments in Abraham's life, and there is no expression of feeling. And I will read them to you. When, when Sarah says to Abraham, 
we have to send Yishmael away. And Abraham was, as you know, dedicated to Yishmael. He loved him. He was his son. He argues with the Rabbeinu Shalom, Shalom that maybe Yishmael should be the one to continue. It says, Vayira hadavam Abraham it doesn't show strong emotion. If we will later on talk about when Yitzchak realized that he had given the the bracha to the quote unquote wrong son, it says That's feeling, my friends. He didn't like it. It was bad. That's not an expression of feeling. Leaving Lot. Hello. Okay. Leaving Lot. There's understatement. Lot was his child. His first child was Lot. He had come with Lot from Orkastim. He went with Lot to Mitzrayim. They come back from Mitzrayim and Lot says, oh, never mind, uh, there's not, we're fighting. And Abraham says, well, okay, let's not fight. And then when he leaves uh, Lot, it says, And then there's silence when stone is destroyed. Abraham has an argument with Rabbeinu Shalom over, it's not an argument, it's a bargaining session between Abraham and the Rabbeinu Shalom about stone that is a, how would I say, it's a template for social justice for the, to the, from, from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. And then it says, Again, it's a word of coming, of getting up, of moving. Remember that, that discussion they had? Again, he's looking. There's no expression of what Abraham felt. Abraham's silent on the way to the arcade. Much has been written and said. What did Abraham talk to Yitzhak about those three days? What did Abraham think? What did he feel those three days? Silence. There's silence on the way back from the arcade. He Yitzhak leaves him when they when they after the arcade. Yitzhak, Abraham comes back alone with his boys. He went for Yerushnei and Yachdav. And at the end it says, the age of Abraham El Narad, Vayakumu, Vayelchu, Vayachdav. He's not a Yachdav in Yitzchot. What did Abraham feel? This silence. Sarah dies. And there there is an expression of feeling. The spode, the live coat. The Nitziv says, why does it say the spode, the live coat? The Sim says, if the Bechi is greater than the Hesbit, so first comes the Bechi. But if the Hesbit is greater than the Bechi, first comes the Hesbit. And I think that no one can deny the devotion and the love between Abraham and Sarah. They come a long way together. They've been through much together. Yet he, he pulled himself together and the spoke came before the Bechi. And he goes out and he buys a grave. And, he buy, and he's, able, he's able to argue with them about the price. And so I think that Abraham is so goal-oriented and so wanting to do what Hashem said to him that he does not allow his feelings to stop him on his appointed rounds. 
because feelings can stop you from your appointed rounds. Being goal-oriented does not stop you from the appointed round. And perhaps it was this kind of of, of that kind of a father that Am Yisrael needed in order to make that change from idol worship, from war costume, from being the son of Terech, or the Terech was Jose Bechuva, not Jose Bechuva, but the Terech never made it here. And they needed that kind of father who was goal-oriented in order for them to be able to, 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 to become the family that would one day become Shiftei Yisrael. Yitzhak, on the other hand, went, went to the Akedah. And the Akedah, some said he was traumatized. I would like to say no. I would say that Yitzhak had a religious experience second to none in the whole world. And Yitzhak became, to my mind, a holy person. And his response to life was from then on, not practical, but spiritual. It was informed from the beginning to the end by the, the Akedah experience. And um, the Nitzv, in, in, in a, to my mind, a stunning description of what happens, describes what happened to Yitz, to what happened to Rivka when she first sees Yitzchak. It says, Fatisa Rivka Deneha, she raises her eyes, she's on the camel, as you all remember, I don't think I have to tell you the story. She's on the camel. He says, it's a very good thing that she was high on the camel because she saw him from a distance. And what would have been, says the Nitzv, I think it's very interesting, and the Nitzv said, what would have been if Yitzhak had been at home and they'd come to Abraham and Abraham would have been polite, as Achnazazachim and Lepakarats, he would have given her a good meal. Then she would have met Yitzhak, she would have thought he was an ordinary person. But no, she's on this camel, and he says, Atisa Rivka Bodo says the 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 Nitzv Bodo omedu mitalel as kimalach elokim nora maod. That's how Yitzchok David. Yitzchok David kimalach elokim nora maod. When you think Yitzchok, no matter what age he was at the Akedah, and the people say he was this, he was that. No matter what age he was, he had seen Malach Hashem saving him. He had seen Malach Hashem talking to his father. And he takes on this quality and he davens ki Malach Hashem ki mevuah berabah sherata yadat shtuchot betfilah She saw how he spread his hands out in tefillah alkei nivatah ma'od She was taken aback by the holiness of the moment. Atipol me'al ha'gamal And she falls. Why does she fall? And he says, Mirov Pachad Veema. Amnan Loyadami Mihi Mipacheti. She didn't know what she was afraid of, but there was a holy aura around him that she was so frightened she falls. And then she says to the Evan, Mia Ishalazeh. And then she, this is how the Nitziv um, says what she continued to say to him. Asher Ani Mipa'el Mepachet Mimenu. Ukinavuab, a bracelet rabba, alashon halazir, mashmaal, 
אדם מאוים ונורא. על כן, כששמע ממנו שהיא אישה, ותהיה גם אבי הר הזמן, ותיקח הצעיף ותתכסס מרוב פחד ובושה. כמו שהבינה שאינה ראוי להיות לו לאישה, ומאז והלאה, and from then on, from that moment on, נקבע בליבה פחד ממנו. She realized that he and she were not cut of the same cloth, that he was holy, and she was a very practical woman. A holy man, I think, indeed, needs a practical woman. <laughs> I always say as an aside, it's very hard to be married to a tzaddik. <laughs> so she knew he needed a, she was a practical woman, but she realized they were, they were not cut of the same cloth. ולא הייתה עם יצחק כמו שרה עם אברהם. הרלשנשיפ ליצחק הוא לא כמו שרה עם אברהם. ורחל עם יעקב, ורחל עם יעקב, אשר בהיות להם איזה פטה עליהם, או they had a different experience, if they had paid out, they were angry at something the husband had done, או שינוי דעה, they didn't agree with him, לא בושו לדבר רתח בפניהם, they didn't mind yelling at them, they didn't mind having a good fight, ומה שאין כן רבקה, וכל זה הקטמה לסיפור שיבוא בפרשת תולדות, שהיו יצק ורבקה מחולקים Rivka felt that this holy man should not be told the truth about the nature of his son. She didn't, literally, in English we would say she didn't have the heart to tell him. וכל זה היה סיבה מהקודש ברוך הוא שיגיעו הברכות ליעקב דווקא באותו האופן כאשר יובמה אהההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההה
to the child that was going to continue in the way. Yitzhak, Abraham, and Sarah had an easy task. That is, the Yitzhak Yikaralecha Sarah. Rabbi Shalom gave the answer. He said to them, this is the child that should do it. Yitzhak and, Sa- and Rivka had no such indication. It was no Yitzhak, it was, didn't say Yaakov Yikaralecha Sarah. So parents had to make a judgment as to the nature of their child. And the nature of their child was something that they had to assess. I would like to suggest that Yitzhak liked Esau, not only because I think Esau was a feeling person. Yitzhak was a feeling person. That scene, when Esau discovers that the brachas were not giving to him, is one of the most powerful, emotional scenes in Sefer Bracious. Even when you see the scene of Yosef and his brothers, he goes in the other room and he cries. It's not the same power. And Esau is this Feelings are going all over the place here. And I think that part of the attraction that Esau had to Yitzhak was his, he was a feeling person. He got angry fast. He was instinctive. He was impulsive. And part of Yitzhak, because of his spirituality, was attracted to these kind of figures. Now, I, I think I'll stop now because I really want, in the course of time, to talk a little bit about Rivka's parenting. But I think I should stop now for comments from my, from my son. Okay, I thought that was, I must say, I thought it was a fascinating idea about Abraham. I've uh, never really thought of Abraham along those lines. Uh, but uh, it raises some, uh, I think, some crucial questions. When Chumash doesn't tell us Abraham's feelings, and this is true, uh, and this is true uh, not only of Abraham, Generally, you could say Chumash really exhibits feelings about leadership. Uh, what do we know about Moshe Rabbeinu's feelings as he goes up to get the Torah? What, you know, it's, we, we see Moshe Rabbeinu when he's disappointed, when he gets angry at B'nai Israel. What's Moshe's inner spiritual world? The Sineh, Manadar Sinai. I remember my, my father once, I think he quoted someone who said as follows, you know, Augustine wrote confessions, uh, Rousseau wrote confessions, and then he had a Padramban did my confessions, Neither did, uh, did anybody, it was, you know, with the exception of Rago ending the word very idiosyncratic and uh, not quite a confession, you could say, of his inner, of his inner spiritual world. Um, in Yiddishkeit, people don't exhibit their religious feelings. From Abraham to this very day. My, my mother once said on the rough that he could not tell his private feelings unless there were 2,000 people in the room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At the least 2,000. <laughs> But the Rav was very, very unique in that he even spoke about his own experiences. Read of Cook. If Cook writes metaphysics and theology, he wrote poetry. He writes very little about what I, Avram, Yitzchak, Hakohen feel. Um, and I remember my father said at the time, what would we give to see the Rabban's inner world? But in a sense, you know, it's made them, I'm not sure what they rise because they're men of action or because we feel that this is so intimate and so personal, 
Avner Vino will not tell me what uh, his feelings are. I remember I, I once uh, spoke in front of high school kids. It was, it was a, it was a Q&A, and I expected to be asked about belief in God. Um, so this kid gets up and he says, the first question is, he raises his hand, do you believe in God? <laughs> now, I was a bit taken aback, okay, the personal, you know, the direct, uh, so I thought for a moment, I said to him, I'm not going to answer. I could, if you want to talk about belief in God, yes and no, and why yes and why not, I'll be glad to discuss that at length. But if you want to ask about my personal, it's, it's, it's my intimate relationship with God, and I will not discuss my intimate relationship. I will not, I'm going to discuss marriage and love. I won't tell you what, I feel, what my feelings towards my wife are individually, and I won't tell you my feelings to, when I talk to God, it's private. No one in is silent on purpose. Uh, and therefore, I think the, the hope isn't, I've been of action, absolutely. I know quite a few people who action is the way they express their feelings. Um, I remember a person who was married for well over 50 years with deep feelings. He had deep need at the funeral to announce when the buses were leaving because he expressed his feelings through action. But about Avram, I think maybe there's a policy of not uh, telling, uh, of not describing feelings in general. I'll say like this, the Midoshim do it. The Midoshim do it all the time. Midoshim do try to fill in the gaps. What did Avram feel? Uh, and now this, of course, raises another uh, methodological problem. You always... In a sense, you always interpret according to your inner world. Uh, I, there's a long passage in the world, which I will maybe read a sentence or two. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite a long passage, but he writes about the Akeda. He writes about how the religious experience is uh, painful, is, is one of pain and, and sorrow, etc. He writes as follows Kadush Baruchu Medal Avraham, Kachnad Binchati Chitrashad Yitzchak, etc. Because Rabbin it doesn't matter how many children he'll have. Yitzchak will always be gone. Kishitzchak yishachelik ben misbech tisher galmod va'ariri. You remain lonely and longing for this. And it goes on and on. Now, in a sentence, what the Rebbe is saying, Vayashkem Rambam Bok, he had a sleepless night. He tossed around his bed all night long. He couldn't sleep. The Rav Kook says in, the, in, the, in his Siddur that Avram got up in the morning, he was refreshed. The post comes to tell you, he had a good night's sleep. He got up, he, uh, he slept well, he was full of energy. Uh, two people with the same psukim, but different perspectives in life, different personalities. So the moment Avramavina doesn't tell us, even if we do assume there's, that he, there's a deep emotional life, it's you're always at the mercy of you want, or at the, at the discretion of the parshan to, uh, to interpret uh, I'd like to move on though to uh, do something else. Um, most of the psukim talk about parenting from the perspective of the parent. Until we reach Yosef. We reach Yosef, there uh, we begin to see how it's in the perspective of the child. However, before we get to Yosef, and maybe we'll discuss it later if there will be time, I do think there's one place where it's implicit. On the one hand, as my mother said before, 
the Torah presents parenting not only as interpersonal dynamic, though it's crucial, but also as goal-oriented. In other words, it's a value system. The world would say it's axiological, but uh, I've never seen the word by anybody else. So, uh, <laughs> But certainly you try to educate towards a certain goal. However, um, and, and in that regard, maybe you could say the Torah therefore presents the parent's perspective. Because the parent is one amazing the next generation. If you, if you take the same pursuit that we quoted a few times, that's a continuation. Kiyadativ, I chose, I elected, I, I love him, whatever, whatever yadativ means, and it's a very tricky word. Kiyadativ, the Masha Yitzvah, Baruch B'Toach HaRav, the man of Yashem HaMert HaShed Yiber Elav. The point is like this. I did only choose and elect Avraham because of his good deeds and who he is, but also in order to ensure a Jew's future. There was, there's a legacy which has to be transmitted, and Avraham, I'm choosing Avraham because he'll be able to transmit the legacy. Now, from that perspective, obviously the parent is at the focal point, and we're not told what you what you Shemuel think. However, I do think there's one place we get it implicitly. This is by Yitzchak. If you look at the psukim, and I don't have the time here to, anal- to, me to analyze the individual you know, psukim, everything Yitzchak does in his career is repeat of Avram Avinu. Everything he does. His famine, he doesn't know what to do. What's his playbook? Let's see what my tata did. And he goes back and he looks, uh, you know, whatever my father did, that's what I'll do as well. He, Yitzchak has only one answer to all problems. I'll do just like my father. And Rabbi Tal used to tell, this, uh, tell a joke about a person who did everything the reverse of his father. So someone came and said to him, how come you do everything, everything your father did, you do with the daft and the opposite. She said, what do you mean? I do the same thing as my father. My father did everything the reverse of his father, so I do everything the reverse of my father. <laughs> but uh, by Yitzchak, he really does the same thing. He's trying to duplicate Abraham. Everything Avraham did, Yitzhak does. Avraham, his family, he goes south, Yitzhak goes south. Avraham goes to Plishtim, he says, this is my sister instead of my wife. Yitzhak says, this is my sister instead of my wife. And so on and so forth. Avraham has a breed with Beersheva, Yitzhak has a breed with Beersheva. Avraham takes seven kvasim, Yitzhak takes seven kvasim. Everything is the same. Now, um, there's only one, so on one level you see here, that at least Avram is extremely successful in creating an aspiration of Yitzchak to be just like him. But of course, as my mother pointed out before, they're very different personalities. They're extremely different personalities. So what's so fascinating is Yitzchak is trying to repeat Avraham, but he's coming from a different, very different perspective. He is not coming from Avraham's personality. He's not, he's not coming from Avraham's mindset. He's coming from a very, very different place. Your petition, in a sense, it serves to point out these are not only individual characteristics of idiosyncrasies of Avram and Yitzhak. Rather, this is the value system because if I did it with my personality, you do a very different personality. So we are seeing here the values, um, but it, it also creates something else. I said before the parent is in charge of the legacy. But who really achieves this in a sense? There's a, a fascinating pasuk. After the whole parak, which describes Yitzchak's uh, repetition, so the pursuit is at the end, and this is, I think, is the crucial point. Um,
after after Fichol Avimelech come and uh, they ask you know to have a treaty with with Yitzchak. Vayikra Shiva. He called the he called this uh, well Shiva. Al Kein Shem Ha'ir Be'Esheva Ad Hayom Hazeh. The crucial three words are Ad Hayom Hazeh. What Avram did was transit was transient. What Avram did was erased by the Pelishtim. They came and they they filled him with dirt. Everything he'd done, his accomplishments could not survive without a second generation. Second generation perpetuated the, the legacy, A, because of second generation, B, because of person, a different personality. So in a sense, Avram's parenting, part of his genius was, he was able to implant within Yitzchak the desire to follow his footsteps from a very different personality, and that's what really created Kibi Yitzchak, Yitzchak, Hazara. Okay, we'll talk later on, I hope, about Yaakov, but I'll, in the meantime, I'll go back to my mother. I would like to comment on what you said about uh, Yitzhak doing everything that Avram had done. Psychologists talk about uh, the, the process of parenting and growing up as being a problem, not the process of parenting, but the process of growing up and becoming an adult as a process of different, differentiation and individuation. On the one hand, a child needs to identify with his parent. A child that does not identify with his parents, a child does not respect his parents, doesn't respect himself. Because if his father and mother are no good, are bad, then he has their genes, he was brought up by them, that he obviously carries this fatal flaw with him. So on the one hand, a child needs to respect his parents, he needs to be like his parents. But if he's like his parent, then he's a clone. And my husband once said to me in a moment of uh, late Samuel, he said, listen, everybody wants his child to be a clone. Let's admit it. So admitting that we all want our children to be clones, realistically speaking, we know that's not possible. So then the child has to find what is different about him. And I would say that Yitzhak, what was the same as Yaak, as Abraham was, they both were, quote-unquote, Olim Chadashim. And Olim Chadashim have to establish themselves. They need cities, and they need, and they need places to live, and they need jobs, and they need water, and they need income. And the same as his father had to do with what was different about him was his psychological makeup and the way he raised his children. Okay, I'll just add one uh, quick comment on that and then uh, turn what to Yaakov nevertheless. Uh, okay, fine. We'll, we'll give Rivka... Okay, Rivka will precede Yaakov. She's his mother after all. Uh, and I defer to my mother as well. Uh, I'll just say that both are Chadashim. If you read Perik Chava very carefully, You'll notice that nevertheless the relationship between Avram and the Plishtim and Yitzhak and Plishtim is very different. Avram and the Plishtim get along very well. They're really comrades. Avram and they're, they're, they're good friends and they respect him. Yitzhak, the Plishtim feel threatened by Yitzhak. They feel because of Yitzhak's holiness, he's an outsider, he's introverted, he's Gvura. Yitzhak doesn't have any real relationships vis-a-vis -vis them and they feel very threatened by his success. 
And therefore, to expel them, they put his apparia, there's no uh, there's no relationship, and everything there is done with suspicion. When and you see at the end of the story, it's like says to them, Why in the world do you want to have a treaty with me? So what do they say? They don't say we respect you, you're a man of God. You are a good neighbor. And they say, you're too powerful. Uh, we, can't, uh, we can't ignore you. And therefore, they deal with, this, with the same issue, but when the, the, the relationships are different, I think there's a lot of contemporary implications for us as well, but that's for a different time. Huh? Okay, uh, now we'll turn. I'd like to talk about Rivka and the Brachot. I think everybody knows the story of Rivka and the Brachot. And Rivka here... The, as the Mitzvah says, does not level with Yitzhak. He doesn't go to Yitzhak and say to him, as the Mitzvah says, why in God's name are you giving the bracha to the wrong child? Said, oh, yeah, and I won't let you do it. She tries to find some way for Yaakov to get the brachas. Yaakov, in this sense, and, and, and um, Yaakov goes through a change in his life. I think that Yaakov starts out as an Ishtam, and he ends up as being a very smart man who knows the world and is able to get along with it. But that's for another Yomi. Um, so, but I think that Yaakov is directed by uh, Rivka. Rivka keeps calling. He's called throughout the Pasha, Benahakatan. And every time it says Yaakov, it says Benahakatan. And three times, Rivka says to him, Shema Bikoli. And she says, listen to me. And the Nitzit claims that, or it suggests, he doesn't claim, he suggests, that twice she uses it with authority. She uses the authority of, of parents, and I'll show you the puzzle in a minute, and that is really because this was the future of the Shiftei Israel. Who the Brachot would go to is a the, the major issue in the nature and the future of Shiftei Yisrael. They weren't an Am yet, but they were, shift, they were going to be Shiftei Yisrael. And then she, is, she uses her authority. The last time when she tells him to go find himself a Shiftei in Chutzlars, she's giving him an Eitzah Tova. And I would like to um, read to you what the, what the Nitzib says. She uses the word saveh, and that is, brings us back to what the Rabbeinu Shalom says, that there is times when you are bringing up your children, you have to be mitzaveh otam. And she said, and the Nativ and She should have said shma. What does she have to say? Listen to my voice. Listen to me. That's enough. Listen to every word I'm saying, my child. I wish I could say that to my children. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. 
<laughs> I'll give you a bracha to all the people here that you can say that to your children all the time. The Ruach HaKodesh was that she knew, because she knew, because God had told her, She had been told, she never told Yitzchak. She was told, not by name which one it was, but she was told that there were two Amin, and that one of them had to continue. And she was... She was smart enough to realize which one this was. One is Sayyid said, Sayyidati, and the other was Ishtam, Yashao, Yoshevo, Halim. And so she said to him, I am using my authority for Tovat of Shifte Israel and the Brachot that we have been given by Abraham in a continuation of Birchot Hashem, that you must listen to what I say. So, she says mitzavelcha, and she says mitzavelcha, and the 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 netziv says shalom yomai yakel kihi ach b'torat eitzat tova. She's giving him good advice. Well, Mary Kimola had line later on. I don't want it for myself, and she's saying it's not for you. It is your job to do something that you don't like doing. That is. Not with your style. It certainly was not Yaakov's style. Yaakov has great, great problem doing what Rivka told him. And I think it's only to his great credit that he was able to do it. I think it was rather difficult to him to do what he did. And she said, I'm, I am telling you, you must do it. Later on, when she says to him, Shema Bikoli, and go get yourself a shidduch, go go get yourself a shidduch, use that as an excuse, get yourself a girl, and but use that as an excuse to run away from your brother because your brother is dangerous. She did mitzavah a lot. She gave him an exact tova because the only solution to his leaving, to, to the problem of Aesop was not leaving. There were other solutions. But so the, she understood Rivka that at times when it comes to the Atid of Am Yisrael, you have to be mitzavah. When it comes to the good of the child, which is him, she says, Barach Lecha. She says, you flee, Barach Lecha. It's for you that you have to flee. It's not for Am Yisrael that you can give advice to a child, and the child either accepts the advice or doesn't accept the advice. And so I would say, I would like to point out that in the youth, in the parent-child relationship, what is what we see here is the responsibility of the parent when it comes to the theme of that at times to use authority and at other times to give a good piece of advice if the child is willing to hear it. I think this becomes an exceedingly difficult task for parents nowadays. They're afraid if they will be mitzavet, the child will brachlecha that if they go the other way around, that if they will give, if they will use authority, the child will run from, from religion. And I think there was something to what they say because the young person said he doesn't like authority. But I think there's a very big difference I would like to suggest 
between using authority for the first time or in in um, in in great measure when the child is an adult and using authority when the child is young. And, uh, research has shown that young children need authority to protect themselves from their own irrational and imperfect understanding of the world. I think it's after, after Piaget, everybody knows that a child does not see the world exactly as it is, and it is only after Winnicott began talking about holding and handling. Everybody likes the process of what Winnicott says about holding, containing the child. But there's also, according to Winnicott, handling. And what is handling? Handling is when you say to a three-year-old, you're tired, and you have to go to bed now. And I don't really care if you don't want to go to bed, because mommy tells you to go to bed. Because the kid is crying, he's screaming, he's irrational, he doesn't want to eat. And you pick him up and you handle him. You use authority. Authority that is used over time with children, by the time they become adults, there should really be no authority. But what the Torah really is saying, at times you must even use authority when someone is adult, because if the future of Am Yisrael depends upon it, then they have to do it. And children that have been brought up with an understanding of authority will realize why this authority is being used then. Okay, okay I'll pick up on maybe the, the last points. Um, yeah. okay, I'll move on to uh, Niti Yaakov. Um, he's a... In a sense, if you look at Sefer Breshit, it's sort of a deep paradox. On the one hand, Yaakov's family has a lot of problems. It almost is dysfunctional at times. Um, there's a lot of uh, conflict. They sell their brother. They sell their brother to, uh, to slavery. I remember when one of my nieces or nephews, like uh, three, four years old, uh, and uh, she couldn't understand, you know, like. My mother said to me, you really can't explain to a kid, uh, what, wait for a second, a four-year-old or six-year-old, why did they sell their brother? There's no way, there's no real good explanation. You know, you see, you find the teacher of Chumash, you tell them, you know, the, these are the protagonists of Chumash, are great people, and they're Avot Ha'umah. And then you see, well, Lama, you're yourself. And you can only say, and you, you can't explain what sibling will rivalry when they're four years old. At the end of the day, it doesn't really explain anything, you know, with all due respect. I may have, you know, com- I may be, may be in competition with my siblings. I never sold any of them or <laughs> contemplated selling them. Uh, so, in one of Yaakov's families, there's a lot of tension there. And so on and so forth. And it doesn't matter if we, let's say we take, we take Chazal and we say Ruben did actually commit the sin of Arayot. Clearly, he is usurping ya- Yaakov's authority totally. He's certainly, uh, basically, challenging Yaakov and his authority instead of the family, and so on and so forth. Yet, Yaakov's family remains whole, while Yitzchak and Avraham just split. Avraham loses Ishmael. He's deeply pained, but he loses him. Yitzchak loses Esav. Yitzchak is also Yitzchak is deeply pained to lose Esav. Yet it happens. Now how then are we to understand this phenomenon in which the family with greater struggles nevertheless emerges whole, but the family 
in which we hear about much less tension. What we see between Yaakov and we see tension, of course. We see, I just say, I just say differently. We see a competition, and with this competition, there's a there's a winner and a loser. But when things burst out into uh, they snipe at each other, they sell each other, and so on, it works out. And I think there are two possible, if you want, ways to uh, need to approach the whole difference here. It really runs, it really separates the Chum, all the celebrations from Lechacha onwards into two separate units. So one way is to go back to what we, began, we spoke about at the beginning, that the narrative of Avram and Yitzchak is most of choosing a successor. It's in the, the, like the Kuzari uh, describes it maybe in great detail, but essentially the question here is who will be the chosen successor? Who will succeed Avraham? Who will be the person who will continue Avram's legacy? And for that, you choose based upon their moral and their religious qualities and not upon relationships. In other words, you prioritize the legacy over the relationships. And if you want, that's certainly one plausible way of viewing the debate between Avram and Sarah in, uh, about, uh, about uh, expelling Ishmael. Avraham talks about interpersonal relationships and both Aladot Pino. Avraham loves him as his child, and Sarah says the legacy is at stake. He cannot be Avraham's successor, and the Kashbok intervenes and he paskins in, uh, in, in Sarah's favor. That the question here is prioritizing the succession and the legacy over uh, the relationship. Uh, and the same between Yitzchak, the, the Rivka Yitzchak argument may revolve around some of those uh, same issues. That's one way of looking at it. Um, and, and such um, such a perspective, they will, will always view their special succession. By Yaakov, the succession is not at stake. Yaakov has been chosen, Yaakov Ubanav, and therefore the Torah gives dynamics. I think another way of looking at it, uh, which I would like to uh, suggest here, or maybe to elaborate upon, Yaakov lives a different life than Avram and Yitzchak. There's a famous debate between the Ramban and Ibn Ezra, whether the Avod were wealthy and lived very comfortable lives, or not so well, well off. Uh, Ibn Ezra claims that Yitzchak even though he became very rich, he lost everything at some point in the market or whatever. He was a pauper. It's a high description, of Yes, uh, he was uh, really he was hardly the practical. According to Ezra, he tells Yaakov to go fetch to Gdayezim because he hasn't eaten meat in a long time and he really can't afford to go buy meat by the local butcher and, uh, and therefore he needs, uh, he needs a real, you know, it's real, it's a real treat to eat meat once uh, upon a time because uh, he really can't afford it otherwise. And Ibn Ezra, who of course was famously very poor himself, um, Ibn Ezra writes there about who thinks that being wealthy is a good idea, or it's, uh, no, it's no, there's no advantage to being wealthy, it's, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And Yeramban really tears into him, Nevashem, Rechad Abraham Bakol, and Kajbar, who made, for normal people, your circumstances maybe don't matter, but people who have a shkachat pratit, who God micromanages their lives, who the Kaddish Baruch who literally looks after every moment of their lives, if they want to go to Makola to do shopping, so the rain stops for 10 minutes, so they can go, they can go to the, do their shopping without getting wet, 
people like this, you uh, obviously they're very comfortable, and because Rachel made them, uh, you provide them with wealth. What did Psukim say? Now, if you know, there's something extremely interesting about the debate between them. All the psukim, if I remember correctly, double check later, all the psukim that describe the Avot being very wealthy, but Avram and Yitzhak. And all the psukim that Ramban quotes to attack Ibn Ezra are all from Avram and Yitzhak. And all the psukim that Ibn Ezra, you know, mentions are Yaakov. Right. Yaakov really kashelul libor the chodesh. Right. Yaakov was working around the clock. He had twelve children. He had twelve children. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of kids. Four wives, twelve children, or four credit cards. Uh, <laughs> four wives. That's the thing. The four wives. They were shopping. So Yaakov, uh, working around the clock, uh, and he describes it. You know, in love is cheating him, and he has to make, finally end after twenty years of the job. He gets her a bonus, and uh, and then Lovin tries to steal his bonus. Uh, and there's a silly part. I think that really is the big distinction. Avram and Yitzchak live lives that the Kodesh Baruch really under Tzela Shechina, in the shadow of the Kodesh Baruch Hu. And uh, if you read the Rabban, how he describes the Shechina Pratit, and he, 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 in fun footsteps of the Rambam, literally, Kodesh Baruch Hu micromanages their lives and makes sure that everything is provided for. Yaakov is different. He lives on Shechina Klalit. In other words, Yaakov has to deal with circumstances the way we do. I think it's a crucial idea that the Torah gives us an Av, who's like one of us. Yaakov is an every man. Avram and Yitzhak are not, are not. Yaakov is. Yaakov faces the same struggles and problems that we face. So it's true economically, I think it's also true in terms of raising a family. Yaakov has to deal with the normal dynamics of family relationships. And the normal dynamics of family relationships include all this balagan which is going on. And you see there all the arguments and, the, and so on and so forth. And therefore, in a sense, Yaakov is the greater role model for us rather than Avram and Yitzchak. Avram and Yitzchak really live lives, elevated lives. They're on a pedestal which we can't reach. Their lives are indeed elevated and, and may be the dynamic and therefore the dynamics of succession may be different and the place of succession within their lives may be different. Yaakov's legacy is simply put to make sure the family stays in the fold and to deal with all of the, all the problems that they contain. And, and this brings me to, to the second where Yaakov indeed contains. And to go to the part my mother was speaking about before, it's very interesting. Rivka uses the authority which is described. Sarah is even more so. Yaakov has a policy of silence. Every time there's a crisis, a huge crisis, Yaakov decides to be silent. He will not say a word. There are three prime examples. The first one is by Shem. That's a bit more problematic. But at the end of the day, Levi, Shem and Levi talk a good chutzpah to him. And Yaakov decides not to... We know from the end of the Chumash and the Brej, we know he disagreed with him. He says at the end of the Chumash that they were wrong as a Chil Hashem. But he decides not to confront them. He sees that they're too uh, worked up, they're too passionate. He feels you know, nothing good will come by confronting them at that moment. As for them to calm down, he decides to move on. The most fascinating place is at the story of Reuven. If you remember, it says like this, Yisrael, 
and I'll stay here uh, quickly. Vaishma in the Tanakh, what that means, he understood. Nishma means to understand. Take take Pesach by Yosef. They did not recognize or understand that Yosef understood. It's not Yosef heard. Of course he heard. And that means that Yosef means Yosef understands. Or by Paro it says, Tishmach alone What does it mean, Tishmach? It doesn't mean you listen. Obviously, you tell the story. It means Tishmach means you understand. And by Shema Yisrael means Yaakov understood deeply the ramifications. He understood the challenge to his authority. He understood the fact that Ruben was totally undermining his position as head of the family. He understood just simply he understood just what an evil act it was. And then you have a pasuk, betoch pasuk. The pasuk freezes. The pasuk can't end. There's a space. Pasuk, betoch pasuk. There's a snachta. And then a new puzzle begins, and there's blank space in the, the Sevatara. And what's the blank space? It's Yaakov debating within his soul to respond or not to respond. Should he come down authoritatively and reassert his authority? Because otherwise, if Ruben can do this, the letter of the kids will see there's no authority, and will see that the, the oldest child is basically undermining the parent, but then he may risk losing, losing Ruben. Or does he remain silent and he loses authority, but he holds on to moving as a member of the family? And you can, you can feel the tension, you can cut it with a knife. The family remains whole. Once more, he'll tell Ruven what he thinks in the brachas later on. And of course, the third episode is Vaviv Shamarit HaDavar. Yaakov heard and he didn't respond. So you have by Yaakov, I think, very personal, in very normal circumstances, much more familiar to us. The dynamics are much, became recognizable of his life in general. But you also have this policy of silence. So in a sense, he's balancing off here, with his mother practice with him, he's balancing off here with his own... Uh, but of course, when does he give, he does make sure his value judgments are registered. They're registered in the brachot. And there he makes, there he doesn't mince words. There he says exactly what he thinks. I'll make a final observation um, that, um, interestingly enough, the Imahot are very involved, as I spoke before, Rivka, Sarah and Rivka are very involved in the legacy, in the child and the parent child relationship. You don't sit with Rachel and Leah. You see, Rachel and Leah, Yaakov is writing the whole show. All of the, everything is being done with Yaakov. You see one thing. Unfortunately, you see that Rachel and Leah are using the children to a large degree. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the competition between them. It's, uh, it requires more time maybe to discuss, but to a large degree, my uh, convoluted relationship with my sister is playing itself out with the children. And also the Dudaim has to be understood as part of the competition between them, is, uh, you know, on one level they seek to have a deep need for the love of the child, do they believe? On the other hand, it's all measured in how does this bring one back to Yaakov, and in a sense the competition there uh, creates great problems with uh, parenthood. Since my mother will conclude, uh, I would just say it's been a tremendous experience for me to, to be here today. I, I really... Um,
I can only imagine uh, that the feeling of a, of a mother uh, to be able to sit, you know, and, and, and have a discussion with a child of Yitzavet, but not we talk about to discuss his relationships and uh, in a sense to see that we got we got tremendous chinuch for described in the beginning, the chinuch of, uh, of the model, in other words, was described in celebration at the beginning. I think that we saw a wonderful example from both from both our parents. Another two of the chimur came from my father. Uh, when we created the twinges, my father can't see this uh, discussion. But um, both my father is Atzala and my mother has the privilege of being here. And uh, I'll give you the concluding words after I've achesh <laughs> I'm like Avraham. I'll say thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like I'm like Avraham. <laughs> I'm a Lichtenstein. You're so <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your kind attention. This was really an adventure. <laughs>